Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, the emerging talking point among some of Hillary's uh, surrogates that um, Trump is the most overweight, um, I believe they might have said, obese candidate since Taft. <laughs> Whose slogan, by the way, do you remember what, slo- what Taft's slogan was? Not, I don't personally recall Taft's slogan. Everyone loves a fat man. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of his slogans. Because <laughs> he was like 400 pounds. Yeah. I mean, he just it's- ran with it. It's vicious, but actually effective in drawing out uh, maybe some truth of Trump. Trump is a fat fat. If we're going to talk about health issues, obesity actually is a serious concern. And it so, represents America. What kind of heart condition is Trump in? Has well, he we had know he's EKG? on a statin now. We learned that today. He only sleeps four hours a night, too, and eats a lot That's of cheeseburgers. Just ask Bill Clinton. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Walking Pneumonia Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Why is it called Walking Pneumonia? Uh, because you're coughing a lot, but you can still walk around. You can walk around while you have pneumonia. That doesn't sound that bad. It means that you can infect many more. Well, that it, it has bad. the it has the lovely uh, <clears throat> addition of sort of vaguely suggesting the Walking Dead without. See, it makes it sound like a zombie play. Or a blues band, right? The Walking Pneumonia? Yeah, I'm going to play The Walking Pneumonia now. Wasn't there like a walking something or other like in the 90s? There was a band like walking. The Travelers. Yeah, the Traveling (laughs) traveling Wilburys. 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 That was Roy Orbison. The Walking Pneumonias. (laughs) The Walking Pneumonias. We already know our music is done by this week. Uh, well, nobody here has walking pneumonia, at least uh, not among our fearless crew of Tamar Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Shane. Um, it's been a big news week, I think. So uh, let's get to it while we while we still have our lungs. Uh, first up, we're going to talk about how much medical history should presidential candidates disclose. Also, activists launch a new campaign to pardon Edward Snowden just in time for the launch of a splashy new biopic on the world's most famous leaker. And FBI Director James Comey gets compared to J. Edgar Hoover. Ouch. Fighting words. Uh, plus, we'll have some object lessons. Um, let's start with this question since we're on walking pneumonia. So, Hillary Clinton uh, on uh, Sunday, was it, at the 9-11 memorial, uh, the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, uh, had to leave early. Uh, she said she was overheating. There was then tape of her getting into her Secret Service, uh, her van, where she um, clearly could not walk by herself. Her feet were dragging. Uh, eventually, we learned that uh, she was diagnosed two days earlier with pneumonia. I was taking antibiotics, uh, continued on the campaign trail, said she's feeling fine, but then has taken a couple of days off. And it's raised again this question of not just the, you know, putting aside the, the sort of conspiracy theories and bizarre strain of remote diagnoses that have gone on 
about Hillary Clinton where you have people speculating that she has Parkinson's disease, you know, based off of video snippets they've seen on the Internet. And we can talk a little bit about that, too. But this question of how much medical history should presidential candidates have to disclose. And so today Donald Trump went on the Dr. Oz show. I think he's a real doctor. I don't know if he's. I think he has a medical degree. He has a medical degree. Is that Um, kind of like being a classically trained singer? Ooh. You know, like Pat Benatar is supposedly a classically classically trained trained singer. Yeah, but she's not doing any arias. Exactly. Uh, And said that he was going to disclose some of his medical records, and he pulled out a couple of pages that he claimed showed tests, uh, which should not be conclusive, I think, of anything to anyone. Um, But it's raised this question. I've been fascinated by this. These people are running to be commander in chief. This has uh, this is a job that has responsibilities that are unique and formidable. Uh, there is no other person that the entire country votes for at once. What do you guys think? I mean, should should Hillary Clinton and Bill, Donald Trump have to give their entire medical records? Should there be sort of a scale of what you disclose and what you don't disclose? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a weird question because it's one on which the public expectation has evolved a lot over time. When you think about the fact that we had a wheelchair-bound president who was elected four times, um, and that was largely hidden from the public. Um, we've had other presidents with health issues that were not disclosed to the public. And yet, the, partly as a result of that history, we are now in an era where presidents go get their annual physical at the Bethesda Naval Center, and there is a press release about it every time they do. And so I I think the expectations have shifted a lot and people do want to know at least the basics of health. But no matter what we get told, um, it's never going to give us the sense of security that we might be seeking from a clean bill of health because, you know, people have strokes, things happen, they slip and fall, you know, all kinds of things um, can happen once you're in office that, that are unanticipated. And so I guess it's, I see it as one of those ways where we try to assuage our anxiety, but we actually can't. So I think, look, I actually think that the um, our gruelingly long campaign season is actually a pretty good test of someone's health and stamina, right? It's it's actually really hard to make those many speeches, that many appearances, that level of travel, right? Um, Especially with the kind of media scrutiny attendant today. Um, I don't really think it's plausible that somebody's able to hide a serious ailment that could actually impair their ability to be president. And so while, sure, in theory, I sort of I could see a, I could imagine a case where like a an independent panel did some sort of baseline evaluations. Yeah, you know, the notion that um, actually there's some like there's a positive benefit to just opening up people's medical records, I think is like neg- there's a negligible benefit compared to the kinds of um, conspiracy theories and running off on on tangents that aren't necessarily. Um, uh, you know, relevant to somebody's ability to govern, right? And really getting into, has the person ever been treated for for depression? Did they check this thing? Did they check that other thing? Questions that like are just not actually related to their ability to govern moving forward, but more using someone's medical history as part of their character. I think that actually has some very ugly potential consequences such that I don't think we should go down any more of the road than we already have of kind of a little bit of information. But why would the question of why wouldn't it be relevant if someone had been treated for a mental illness? So I think I think the the, the key question is relevant to what? And we always we always 
talk about the presidency as a sort of one cluster of stuff. But I, I think there's a, I think it's really worth disaggregating the set of things that your meant your 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 medical history may or may not be relevant to. So one is, are do you have the physical stamina to handle the day to day grind of an incredibly intense job uh, that is twenty four seven that has constant public elements that you're sort of on the go all the time uh, and from one crisis to another. Now, I think the answer in the case of both of the and, – and, and for that purpose, I actually think somebody's medical history is less interesting because there are a lot of people whose medical histories, like, for example, mine, would give you no indication that I'm utterly not up to that job, that I need downtime away from people that's completely to- and totally un- um, can, inconsistent with the presidency. I need a certain amount of time to sit around and read. You're not going to get that from my medical history, but you would get that if you subjected me to a campaign that I'd get grouchy and pissed off and I wouldn't be very good on the campaign trail. And so in that sense, I think for really, somebody... Really, I think of you as a consummate politician. Yeah, I, right. I and that's because, I have has... to do, that's because I have to do it so very rarely. <laughs> I think Ben has just declared introverts unqualified for the presidency of the United States. I, I think we I've declared introverts unlikely to go through the campaign process in an effective <laughs> oh, way. Oh, okay. So it's a self-selection um, process. But so, like, I think the... the the second question, which is a completely different question, is, is there some chronic condition that the public would ma- might make a different judgment about you if they knew about? Oh, sure. And, and either because they have a question about what, you know, in the case of a mental health issue, whether that, you know, whether that would affect your thought patterns or ability to, to function – or because in the case of some physical condition, whether they believe it would progressively deteriorate your ability to function in the position. I mean, like, let's just say for sake of argument that Donald Trump had a brain tumor and his doctor said you have 36 months to live. Well, so that's not a hypothetical case because, of course, Paul Tsongas did have a brain tumor, right? Was he and, diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor? Well, so he was diagnosed um, – He, I, I, I may be I, – I may be – Oh, was it Tongas who had the brain? Tongas had cancer, which he eventually died of. But Joe Biden had had a brain tumor. Right. Right. And so, you know, th- there are there are people who, you know, you have to price in the prior conditions that they had. And Tongas had, you know, had had cancer and then after the 1992 campaign, then died of cancer. And so and died in what would have been Clinton's in what would have been his I forget whether it was his first or second term. So it would have been very relevant. Now, I think those conditions, you do have an obligation as a candidate to disclose. Well, okay, well, Fungus fine, was also fine. not the nominee. He wasn't the nominee yet. But I, I, I think that's fine. But that's also a fairly clear and fairly low bar. Um, what I see here is, you know, this sort of um, – social media age impulse that, no, we get to know everything about you. You know, we get to know what's on your summer reading list. We get to know what you like to eat for for a late night snack. Uh, we get to know what your blood cholesterol is. We, you know, and and we have a right to that information because you, by running for president, have made yourself a public figure. And 
you know, the celebritification of this year's campaign by having a reality TV show star as the Republican nominee, I think has only exacerbated that. And the way he played this game with his medical records with Dr. Oz today on television, should I, shouldn't I? No, I'm not going to tell you. Oh, okay, here. So that when he finally gives a measly one-page summary, that's seen as like a surprising and, and dramatic and, and exciting revelation. This, to me, just points up how useless mm-hmm. the information is. And I, you know, and then when it comes to conspiracy theories, going to the point that Susan made, as somebody who works on the Middle East, I can tell you that all the data in the world does not disperse conspiracy theories when people, ex- you know, when people uh, feel an interest or when those theories resonate with what they're feeling emotionally, they cling to them. And so I don't think that more disclosure is a way to combat conspiracy theories either. I think this is just one of those things that, um, you know, like you said, Susan, maybe it's just not very relevant, but our cultural moment is such that we're going to do it anyway. Right. I mean, the big sort of um, un- unmentioned name in this conversation is Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. right, who um, I think pretty clearly with the benefit of hindsight was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. But 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 which was undiagnosed and he his medical uh, his records were at least if memory serves, he received regular medical attention from the White House doctor and they were, you know, quite up forthcoming about I'm it. I'm not sure, though, that they ever even – they ran a screen for Alzheimer's or even if the screens were any good. At that right. Yeah, but, but, at that point, but, I'm but, not but sure. But wasn't it at least could. a question before his second election? No, people I don't jo- believe People so. joked about how he seemed old and doddering, but – yeah, but 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 I. But they, I mean, they made that joke about him in his first. Term. Right, and then there was also an SNL sketch suggesting it was all a ruse and that he was actually this maniacal genius. Well, behind and, the and, and, and there was the famous uh, exchange with Walter Mondale in the '84 debate, where, you know, I forget who asked the question. You know, is age a legitimate issue in this campaign? And Reagan said, "No, it isn't," and I will not make an issue of my opponent's youth and inexperience. And everybody laughed and the issue went away. Um, I mean, I I wrote this in my first book. I mean, I interviewed John Poindexter extensively for that book, and he was the national security advisor. And he remembers prepping Reagan for the press conference on Iran, well, what was then the Iranian arms sales, and saying at the time that he had these suspicions like something is not right here, something is... He seems more distant than usual. In hindsight, Poindexter, whose mother died of Alzheimer's, said, I do think he was suffering the early stages of Alzheimer's. Now, if a president were diagnosed with Alzheimer's, I think he would be under significant pressure to resign. Yeah, yeah. and, well, and course, should be. But how far should it go, right? So now you can get pretty comprehensive genetic screenings, yeah. right? So we could actually just pull everybody's blood as a condition Ugh. of registering with the FEC, screen them Ugh. all, give a give a numerical probability that they would develop cancer or Alzheimer's or anything else, yeah, and and have at it. That seems, that seems like it's too a far. great, great movie. Gattaca Gat- two, no, Gattaca, 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 Gattaca two. two, the presidency, right, <laughs> right. I mean, that's the sort of dystopian road that this insistence on disclosure goes down. And you know, just as those probabilities actually would not reveal anything about any individual case, um, I don't think this degree of demand for medical disclosure tells us that much either. Now, all of this is very different, of course, from. Um, the politics of getting sick on the trail and not admitting that you're sick. 
um, which, you know, which is what happened with Hillary Clinton this week. And what's interesting to me about that is the way it sort of um, everybody's uh, used it as a cultural touchstone for different things. So Christiana Monpour did this monologue about how women are never allowed to admit that they're sick. Um, and, uh, and on the right, you know, you see people using it to confirm their theories that Hillary has some hidden illness that she won't admit to because she hit her head when she was at secretary of state and, you know, and now something's wrong with her brain. So I, I, to me, that is almost a distinct question from the medical records question, because that's about how do you deal with something that actually is happening in real time? I would have spun it as she's so tough even walking pneumonia can't keep her down. That's what I said. I said they should just play the, like, Jordan at the 97 NBA, you know, with the flu. Like, she's the toughest thing there is. Ooh, I like that analogy. Jordan. All right, we're going to move on to our next topic. Before we do, I'm just going to note uh, we're recording this on a Wednesday afternoon. Apparently, Hillary's medical records are coming out on CNN as we speak. So when you hear this, that you may is know some, more. That's some impact and uh, yeah, direct response to rational Yeah, but we'll see. We don't know what it says Somebody's yet. Somebody's but... listening to <clears throat> our podcast. Which brings us to Edward Snowden. Which brings us to Edward Snowden. Nice. <laughs> so today, uh, activists and civil libertarians launched a new campaign to persuade President Obama to give Edward Snowden a pardon. Good luck. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, it, it's also, it is being timed for Friday's release of um, the new uh, uh, Oliver Stone-directed biopic, uh, Snowden, which I... Wait, Snowden killed Kennedy? Yeah. For the CIA? Believe me, after watching this movie, you might believe Edward Snowden, <laughs> Oliver Stone thinks so. We'll talk a little bit about the movie, which I saw on Monday, um, uh, what I don't think you guys have seen yet, but let's talk about this. Um, this campaign to pardon Stone. I mean, Ben, right? Good, you said good luck. I mean, this seems completely unrealistic. Um, oh, what is it really real... designed to do? Yeah. I mean, come on, this is so. Look, is this bordering on juvenile? I mean, what's going on? Here? Uh, no, I think it's strategically smart, actually. Um, so let's figure out first of all what this isn't about. It's not about getting Snowden a pardon. There is, as far as I know, only one fugitive from justice who uh, has gone abroad, spent a lot of time abroad, and got a president going out the door pardon, uh, and that's Mark Rich, and that did not end well for Bill Clinton. And I think that the experience of that, and Mark Rich's crimes were, you know, like not against the federal government, and they particularly weren't against the particular administration against whom he was from whom he was seeking a pardon. So I think the chances that Barack Obama is going to give uh, Edward Snowden a pardon are very slim, like very, very yeah, slim. Zero. 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 Uh, and the chances that, uh, and the degree that the intelligence community would understand that as a slap in the face is extreme. So what is this really about? And what it is about is if you've got um, a movie coming out about your guy and your guy is, uh, you know, isolated, drifting out of the news, uh, increasingly unimportant. Uh, and by the way, his patron, uh, Vladimir Putin, is one of the villains of the current election cycle that uh, figuring out a way to uh, to make the conversation about Snowden more energetically positive 
uh, and and to remind people that he's there uh, is part of your job as as an advocate. And I think that's what's 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 really driving it. So continuing our movie reference stream. This is wag the dog. This is a wag the dog scenario for Ed, Edward Snowden. No, because we're not we're not creating a war. We're not. <laughs> um, but 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 I think it is a uh, it's an attempt to capitalize on on the movie to uh, bring him back into the discussion in a way that's not about you know Vladimir Putin trying to hack the U.S. elections. That's not about uh, WikiLeaks. That's not. Um, Okay, so you published a, a piece on Lawfare today by someone advocating. Yeah, by Tim Edgar, for, who was uh, for this pardon. Yeah, worked in the Bush administration on civil liberties issues. Well, let me just read it from real quick on that. Just what, what Edgar says, because and we're going to see if students had explode. Yeah, let, let's just have, let's just have like a non-cynical take for a second. Okay, this, just just read what Edgar it, says then briefly. We'll talk about it. He okay. says the NSA's operations are essential national security and international stability, but it is hard to reconcile them with the values of a free society. Snowden forced the NSA to become more transparent, more accountable, more protective of privacy, and more effective. Today, the NSA's vital surveillance operations are on a sounder footing, both legally and in the eyes of the public, than ever before. For that, the United States government has reason to say thank you, Edward Snowden. So, uh, look, I, I liked him a lot, and I think he um, he has really interesting sort of measured perspectives on a lot, lots of things. Um, he could not be more wrong, and I'm not sure I've ever seen him be more wrong or, or have sort of, frankly, a, a sillier argument than the one he's offering here. Um, so the essence of his argument is that there is some, uh, like, all the all things totaled up together, and maybe Edward Snowden, the person, doesn't deserve a pardon, but maybe he did more good than harm, even inadvertently, and we all would benefit from just sort of moving on, and therefore he deserves a pardon. So what's wrong with that? Well, a couple things. One, um, uh, what Edwardson is asking for is is not a commutation of his sentence or pardon after he's sort of faced justice, right? So this is not a circumstance in which... Um, uh, the the application of the law or the um, the match of sort of the offense and the sentence is such that it sort of it doesn't quite comport with um, with our, our basic values. Um, I, I actually think there's a, a reasonable case to be made that Chelsea Manning might be um, a, a good candidate um, for sort of um, commuting her sentence. Um, uh, and there's uh, there's more sort of complexities and mitigating circumstances around that story and actually um, some potentially really significant benefits to the United States government for, for really considering that. Um, uh, Snowden is is distinctly not in that category. Um, so so what he's really doing is, is he's refusing to stand for justice, right? Um, he doesn't want to um, uh, actually have the facts of the case aired, right, and, and sort of and have the adversarial process decide if he's guilty of the crime. Well, he said he wants right, that, but he said he, well, he, can't, he thinks he can't get a fair trial because he can't make an affirmative Yeah, because the system's right. Right, right because he can't make an attempt at jury nullification. Right. I mean, this is sort of, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a very sort of silly and weak argument, um, in part because, look, Edward Snowden has the keys to his own prison. If he wants to go home and, and face a jury of his peers, he should be entitled to due process. I would argue very strongly that, that, that DOJ should not be engaging in any kind of tricks of SEPA and, and 
classification and standing. I mean, really, they should um, they should welcome a trial on the facts. Um, but the notion that that uh, that either a pardon is necessary for us all to move on, or that Snowden is in any way deserving of a pardon, um, I think really is contrary to everything Obama has expressed about his notion of the pardon power. Um, right? Uh, whenever Obama talks about the pardon, he sort of talks about it as connected to um, to his sense of mercy. Um, he really does appear to think that this is among his more sort of sacred duties. Um, he's used it to effectuate sort of uh, criminal justice reform, pardon nonviolent offenders. Um, you know, right? It's he sort of he talks about um, the American principle of a second chance. You know, the idea that um, that a president who is sort of has a, that kind of, of sense of the responsibility is going to be persuaded by you know uh, Twitter polls and popularity contests from someone who's been nothing but but snide and uh, unrepentant about even sort of his most egregious offenses, I just think is, is ridiculous. Well, and I would say not just snide, but self-righteous. And, and I think that's one of the things, what's one of the reasons why he's so polarizing and the discussion of his fate is such a polarized discussion is because he doesn't merely, and those advocating for him, don't merely claim that, you know, oh, come on, he deserves a second chance. They claim that what he has done is righteous and worthy of a claim, and therefore he should be pardoned. And I think that's that's really quite striking. But actually, my my issue with the uh, with the argument that Edgar presented on Lawfare for a pardon for Snowden is much simpler. There's just a a logical fallacy at the core of his article. He's basically saying there are these things that Snowden's revelations led to in terms of greater transparency and and reform in the NSA, and they are good things, and therefore the, the means are justified by those ends. So, you know, now, first of all, that's a bad argument in and of itself. The means justify the ends. Oh, really? Always? Um, but you also have to look and say, okay, well, if these means were really bad, but they produce good ends, were there any other means that could have produced those ends? And did and they the, also produce other ends that were not yes, so good? Yes, of course, which that's a separate issue, I think. And part of the challenge, I think, for the public on that is that the costs of Snowden's revelations are much less clear to the vast majority of the public than they are to intelligence professionals. But there are other means that that were available and remain available and, in fact, this article details some of those means in operation at the same time, i.e. congressional oversight. Now, maybe people feel as though there are structural reasons or political reasons why congressional oversight doesn't work as well as it should, but I don't see why that justifies the degree of disregard for the law and for national security and, and so on that Snowden displayed. And so these weren't the only means to arrive at the, at these positive ends. And the idea that just because we ended up with some good outcomes out of this, even if one does agree with that, that that makes it all, um, not merely acceptable, but worthy of a pardon. I actually, I, I find just a, a bizarre, bizarrely weak argument. I actually think there's an, there's another issue that this whole thing skips over, which is a plea deal. I mean, you know, if you believe that Snowden... He has said he will not plead to a felony. I, I, I understand. But, but if Snowden's, you know, 
if you're if you walk in with the position that hey this was really unacceptable means but it produced some valuable ends and that mitigates it to some degree it doesn't necessarily mitigate it to the degree that you would pardon the underlying activity it might mitigate it to the point that you would agree to offer him a less harsh deal um and i think the you know the, then you would otherwise permit him and i think it's interesting that the snowdenista faction uh, their view is that they want total absolution, not some amelioration in, in recognition of the, the, the positive benefits that emerge. And I would be totally sympathetic to the idea that, look, I, I believe the government has him dead to rights on enough charges that he could go away for a very, very long time. And I would be totally supportive of a deal in which he went away for a relatively short period of time uh you know how many years i would be perfectly comfortable with his serving 10 years how about five i would be less comfortable with that but under the right circumstances with the right like so for part of it for me is that he's so unrepentant about it and i i think the you know that actually that actually uh, minimizes my sense of leniency about it. But the idea that he should be valorized and forgiven completely, given the magnitude of the damage to me, is unthinkable. Like, I also want to sort of um, take the opportunity to um, to sort of dispense with this um, this notion of the IC like out for for vengeance and blood, and that they're like they're furious with with Edward Snowden and sort of a, and demand retribution. Um, uh, people in the IC, by and large, do not think about Edward Snowden, um, and he sort of uh, he he clearly thinks of himself as having this sort of outsized influence. Um, yes, he he made people's lives really really difficult for a period of time, and actually, um, what's gotten a little bit less attention is that. Um, um, uh, the Cipher Brief released an interview today with Stephen yes. Bay, who was uh, Edward Stone's boss um, uh, at Bose, who oversaw his, uh, his work at Hawaii, talking about sort of the events leading up to, to him, um, Stone departing for the country. And, and I think gave um, a little bit of a color about what uh, Stone's impact on the individual lives of his co-workers were, were like, right? Bay talking about um, it being the worst day of his life, wondering what was going to happen to his family, to his future, thinking about what was going to happen to the team he managed to his colleagues, right? I mean, I think it does put a really interesting um, spin on the uh, the interpersonal pain that his actions inflicted on, on people that he worked with um, who were supporters of his career, who um, who had really uh, done a lot for him personally. I think that says a lot about um, Stone's character. Um, but sort of separate and apart, you know, whenever the, the trailer for Stone, um, the this uh, work of fiction, and then let's face it, that's what it is. It's loosely inspired by by real events. In but- fact, it opens by saying was is, is a dramatization based on events between 2004 and and 2014, which should be your first clue. That's code for bullshit that I made up, which yeah. is fine as long as it's being presented as that, right? As, as a work of fiction. But this is where, and this is where I have. A, I would love to ask the ACLU and Anthony Romero and these folks who are getting behind this pardon push. Did you actually see this film before you agreed to time it? Because if you did, what were you thinking? Yeah, okay, but, just but, tell but, us about the film that that. 
I mean, it's for it first. It's a terrible film. First of all, it is dramatically uninteresting. Thumbs down deeply. Yeah, I mean, I'm not putting aside any political sort of analysis of it. It's just a dumb movie, and it's boring, and it's clunky, and and it's hyperbolic, and you know, the characters are just utterly flat, and there's <clears throat> totally not enough shots of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's ass. So it's ass. a movie. Um, yeah, <laughs> more nudie scenes is what I'm looking for. Uh, no, but seriously, in all seriousness, like there are just whole elements. Like they actually create, and Hebertson or Wilberson has admitted this, a moment to explain Snowden's ultimate motivation for leaking this information that never happened, which is that the CIA senior official who cultivated him and mentored him, and they went on hunting trips together and all this kind of stuff, turns out is spying on Snowden's girlfriend. And this is this this is the last straw that pushes him to leak the information. And also, and it, there's a scene when he's copying it onto the thumb drive in the uh, operation center in Hawaii where it is made unmistakably clear that two of his colleagues know he's doing it and are giving him the thumbs up and almost covering for him. These are these are these are distortions. And I mean, well, the, the one about the motivation really was the worst thing. I mean, millions of people will see this movie and be like, yeah, Edward Snowden leaked because the CIA was spying on his girlfriend. That's horseshit. Right. And and, the problem, <laughs> and why would he want that narrative out there? Well, that doesn't help him know, at all. Thank you, Hollywood. We can add that to uh, Hillary Clinton told the Pentagon to stand down and not save her ambassador yeah. in Benghazi. Thank you, just, Michael Bay. I mean, this you movie know, does no favors does. to the part in Snowden. No, but because movie. these movies, I think it's, I think it is a calculation. It's because these movies endure in people's minds in a way that the particular details of the application of the business records program don't. And so uh, I think, I think it's a total calculation. And you say, what, what would the ACLU say? You know, Ben Weitzner, who's, who's um, Stone's attorney at ACLU, actually did give an interview where he said, well, you know, of course, it's a dramatization. There's artistic license. That's code for it's all made up. But I think that it's really true to the essence of the characters, the essence of the motivation. Yeah. And that's the part at I'm which not sure that's, even I, that's true. ridiculous, right? So, I love Ben Weisner. But if you translate that into English, what that means is, no, it's not true. But take it seriously anyway, because it justifies what my client did. Exactly. All right. All so, right. you know, this is the Washington version of Hollywood marketing. Maybe. We can all take a field trip to work. Also, together. when I went to the screening sponsored by the ACLU, they took away all of our cell phones and put them in paper bags and held them outside the theater. Get out. Yeah. That's awesome. Isn't that awesome? Amazing. Did you tweet that? <laughs> yes. It was like we tweeted a thousand times. Maybe not a thousand, but yeah, people reacted. Um, okay. Uh, let's move on to our, our last topic of discussion. Um, there is a Big old swipe at Jim Comey that was published in Politico magazine this week by a former speechwriter for Eric Holder, arguing that James Comey is essentially the most dangerous, power-hungry FBI director since the most dangerous, power-hungry of them all, J. Edgar Hoover. Um, ben, what is this? <laughs> he also quotes you in this article, Ben, so I think you should get first crack at the gist <laughs> of the argument, and maybe you not then want to... um. Well, so let me try to give the argument its due. Um, so the the article is written by a former speechwriter of Eric Holder's, uh, who's now associated with the West Wing Writers Group. and Not the TV show. Right. And he is – he argues that uh, though Comey is not characterologically like Hoover at all and – he seems to be an honest guy. 
he's actually amassed more unaccountable power than any FBI director since Hoover. And he cites uh, two clusters of evidence uh, for this. One is uh, a group of people that he either talked to uh, and those, he, he claims that there are dozens and dozens of anxious Justice Department officials, but he actually speaks, quote, cites none in the piece. He cites a former uh, Justice Department uh, PR guy. He cites um, a former AUSA and criminal defense lawyer. And he cites uh, a Columbia law professor named Dan Richman, who's a very close friend of Comey's and an advisor to Comey. And he cites me. Um, and he quotes an article that I wrote uh, expressing anxiety about Comey's decision on the Clinton email stuff, but also saying that I, I thought he probably, under the circumstances, did the right thing. His decision it, to talk about it, his not decision his decision to not to it. prosecute. Right, that, that, he, that he had done that it was a it was a dangerous precedent under the circumstances it was probably the right thing to do was the argument that i made and he quoted all the parts except the part that i said it was the right thing to do and that i didn't disagree with it um the second body of material he refers to is a um is a set of decisions that comey made some of which are fictitious uh so he doesn't like some some issues that Comey expressed opinions on mandatory minimum sentencing and and uh, um, and the the so-called Ferguson effect that that Comey talked about. But he also claims that Comey uh, scuttled an administration cryptography initiative uh, by uh, insisting on the Apple showdown. Now, listeners of this podcast know that there has never been an administration encryption initiative. It, it simply... Oh, no, there was a great plan. They totally knew what they wanted <laughs> right. the to do. The interagency process Comey. was in right. full agreement. the White House was not thrilled with Jim Comey going out and floating policy ideas. Well, so, the, so, so first of all... I mean, I'm not the, sure that's accurate. Yeah, I don't think that's accurate. I think, first of all, there is no the White House here. I've seen it, Ben. There's it's the, at 1,600 pence. There's, <laughs> there's the tech people in the White House and there's security people in the White all House. All right, fair and enough. And they're not on the same page. There's also we're the breaking news here on rational security. <laughs> um, and so there was no initiative that the, you know, and moreover, Comey did not do the Apple stuff on his own. That was the Justice Department litigating that case uh, in support of the FBI. Uh, and that it is, is simply incorrect to describe the FBI as having sort of blown up a great deal, a great consensus about that. So it's a very peculiar article. Um, okay, but why does even if even if all of these contentions were true, and you've just given us reasons to think they aren't, why does all of this present such a grave danger to the republic? Well, so so this is a really interesting question, and and I and I think the the article, the the rhetoric is incredibly shrill. Um, and incredibly scared. And the, I agree. Maybe the guy had just seen the Snowden movie. Even, even if, I mean, he sounds like Snowden. Um, even if. Kind of looks like him, too. Even if all of the <laughs> Have allegations. Have you ever seen him in the were, same room? Even if all of the allegations were true, and some of them really aren't, it kind of amounts to the FBI director being an FBI director uh, and, you know, 
pissing off some people in the Justice Department when that happens, you know. Um, I do like sort of the presentation right up, for example, um, the fact that Comey would offer to resign, um, which is sort of, uh, you know, in people who serve in the government, um, I think there's uh, there's a broad understanding that you have to be prepared to resign that job. That's the only way to sort of be an effective, high-level uh, sort of advisor. It's right at some point you have to be willing to step down. Um, that This article sort of paints that as like throwing a hissy fit and stamping your feet right. and threatening to quit, which is sort of, it's an interesting take. Yeah, that, I thought that. that was interesting too because, I mean, he sort of made it sound like the fight over stellar wind and the hospital room scene was over this, like, oh, it was a minor point. I mean, Jack Goldsmith, John Ashcroft, Robert Mueller, I mean, all these people really thought this was a big deal and were prepared to take some serious action. And it's not a small thing. It was not a small thing. It was a very big deal to a large group of people who were involved in it. And, you know, look, I am not going to argue that all of Comey's decisions all through his career are were the right ones. And I did, in fact, express anxiety about what he did with the Hillary Clinton email case. Um, that said, uh, this article is it's an it's amazingly personal. It's amazingly thin. It does not. um it does not remotely deliver the goods. And some of it is there. There are passages of it that are perilously close to simply fraudulent. And um, and I think Politico needs to do some thinking about what it is OK to let a former official say about a current official without justifying it with real material. OK, so I, I mean, at bottom, though. This is one of those Washington articles that reveals something about Washington, which is that uh, federal agencies, like all bureaucracies, have politics. And, you know, you have here a guy who's clearly a partisan on one side of a bureaucratic dispute, uh, and he is using um, a media outlet to wage that battle and in public. And, you know... What's always interesting to me is that to to those of us who work in this town and know this town, that stuff is usually pretty evident on its face. Um, but to the broader public, it is almost always opaque. And so what matters to me is not that these pieces get written or published, but how they get picked up and carried in the broader public discussion. But I actually think there is another, um, it's sort of, there's another Washington story that's a little bit too bad that didn't uh, sort of come forward. And that's the notion that there are people um, in these sort of long serving career positions and in various institutions who um, disagree strongly and vehemently on all kinds of stuff and still recognize one another as individuals of tremendous integrity working towards a common mission, right? That's actually this really nice thing. Um, and, and sort of uh, Jim Comey's reputation, uh, which is not so much uh, mythology, but um, sort of uh, marks him as a member of a relatively small club of lawyers that have moved throughout the federal government that are um, uh, uh, sort of noted for their personal integrity, despite you know, policy differences. And so it, I do think it's it's always too bad when people read stuff like this and maybe see kind of the petty partisanship and miss um, the other sort of, I don't know, nicer story at all. Oh, Susan, you're so old fashioned. I know. My I, I just do want to close by saying there is one respect in which Jim Comey is like J. Edgar Hoover, which is that he looks absolutely stunning in jungle red stilettos. Photos <laughs> <laughs> or it didn't happen. <laughs> We'll Photoshop that. Maybe Edward Snowden has a copy. <laughs> 
Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first. Uh, so I'm actually using my object lesson right now. I thought this was actually very clever of the ACLU at the screening for the Snowden movie. Uh, on the back or the front, really, of a little card that's that advertised the Snowden uh, pardon website. They gave you these handy little goofy decal stickers to stick over your webcam. There you go. <laughs> Prevent Actually extortion. Useful. There you go. I thought that was really clever. Very practical. Good marketing. Very and, and doing, yeah, doing a public service. And, and what I, does it say? It just says American Civil Liberties Union. They gave you like a whole sheet of stickers. It was like, it was like. Because like, we all have that many devices It was really fun. Yeah, yeah, but it was really fun. It was like being a little kid and you get the sugar sheet. Sugar sheet. <laughs> I just put this one on here because, you know, I thought it would be good to show off today. But there's all kinds of them. So, uh, and there's some, some I think, Some pervert somewhere too. just logged into a, his webcam to look at Shannon. It's like, damn it. Now, how do you know I didn't always have one? There? <laughs> <laughs> Who else has an object lesson today? Um, well, I have an object lesson that is um, a reflection of my fundamentally sentimental uh, nature. My object is this, these grimy, grubby, falling apart iPhone headphones. They're an endangered species. My earbuds um, that are barely still alive, covered in gunk. The plastic is coming off of them, and they're now obsolete, I understand. Um, but I Not believe entirely. that they are about to become a very valuable item because all of us who are not upgrading our phones are going to need our earbuds. So I'm going to hang on to these and, and auction get, them on eBay. If you get the new phone, you can get a dongle to connect your your earphones. You, you just know, can't charge your phone while you're listening to your earphones anymore. How many dongles can I have in my life, really? Because yeah, I, I feel kind one of big indongled. I object to the word dongle. I do. It's it a feels dirty, obscene. I don't it's like it. It's a dirty it. word. It's a dirty yeah. word. It's, it's, it's that dongle it's away. Yeah. It's like we're not going to get into. We're not going to get into. It's like moist. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's upsetting. Wigwam. Moist, moist dongle in your pocket. <laughs> God. <laughs> God. Too far. Too far. Apple Seven. Bad. bad. iPhone Seven. You made a bad choice. Um, I guess that brings us to the end of the show. We and it was I, almost. I, I cannot outdo my object lesson from last week. No, and no, you shouldn't try. Yeah, it was I, almost I, a dumb I am, by the way, episode. going to teach my class tomorrow, and I'm going to be introducing a guest lecturer, and I'm going to introduce him with a fireball. Oh, are you? Yeah. Are you going to tell us who the guest is? Uh, it is a, a current sitting government official. So nice. But I think fireballs are important to, to get the conversation going. Well, certainly for getting people's attention. Yep. It'll wake up your students. All right. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Please follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, send us your questions. We're overdue for some audience questions. So maybe next week now that we're back in the post-Labor Day swing. When you download the podcast from iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher, please remember to leave a rating and review. That really helps us out a lot. Our audio engineer for the show is Quinta Jurassic. Our producer and editor is Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Jim Jim Comey and the Drama Queens. Oh, nice. I thought you were doing the walking pneumatics. The walking pneumatics? Pneumonia. The walking walking pneumonia. I changed my mind. Okay. I like that because I, I did think that article made the argument that he was a big drama queen. That actually should have been in the headline. Jim Comey. Jim Comey, drama, drama queen. Oh, uh, no, of course. Our music is performed as always by Sophia Yan. Not a drama queen. Not a drama queen. Very steady. In Japan these days. Ooh, yeah. I didn't know she relocated. Well, just for a couple months. Oh, okay. Keeping secrets from me. She moves around more sly than Edward Snowden. Uh, thank you, Sophia. And, you know, 
Sophia's had a lot of drama, but she always trudges through it. Trudge, trudge, trudge. That's right. She gets through it gracefully. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittis, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.